0: episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is C.L. Bragg, better known to our longtime friends as Chip Bragg. He's co-author of a new book, Patriots in Exile, Charleston Rebels in St. Augustine During the American Revolution. He and Professor James Waring McCready, retired from the University of the South at Sewanee, co-authored this book, which is an interesting look at a not very familiar occurrence during the American Revolution, particularly even to most South Carolinians. So, Chip, what I'd like to start off with is, why did you and Waring McCready decide to do this book?
1: Thank you, Walter, and it is indeed a pleasure to be here again. When I wrote the William Moultrie's biography several years ago, there was an episode in the book after the surrender of Charleston to the British in 1780. William Moultrie was the ranking Continental Army officer, and as such, he had the occasion to frequently deal with the British Commandant, a Lieutenant Colonel Nisbet Balfour, with whom he had a fairly poor relationship. Moultrie writes a letter to Balfour one day, saying that he had picked up the newspaper and to his astonishment, he had read that quite a number of respectable citizens of Charleston had been rounded up the day before and
0: put on ships in the harbor. All right, let's just stop there a minute because he was in Charleston. He was he was on parole, but he actually was across the Cooper River uh, at Snee Farm. So he was not in the city when this event occurred. He was not. All right. Let's back up a few minutes and talk about parole. When Charleston surrendered, uh, actually Moultrie was not the commander. Uh, Benjamin Lincoln was. But Lincoln was exchanged, right? He was, uh, leaving Moultrie as the de facto commander. And in the 18th century... The term parole meant something quite different from what it does today.
1: It does, and it did. And what would happen when um, armies would engage in warfare, you know, one side would win and one side would lose, and the victors were often um, in possession of quite a number of prisoners of war who they could neither feed nor clothe nor house or what, what have you. And so it was a custom at the time to place these prisoners on parole, which meant they had the ability to move about a circumscribed area, a town or a countryside, so to speak, and pretty much look after themselves so long as they obeyed a list of rules which promised by under their honor that they would um, not
0: do anything detrimental to the work of their captors. Okay. So, when Charleston surrenders, there are a lot of POWs, almost 5,000, right? Yes. Um, And so, they are placed on parole. They, They take parole. But then when Sir Henry Clinton gets ready to leave Charleston, he revokes that parole. And so you want to pick up the story there?
1: He, he does revoke that parole, but in the minds of these parolees, all of these um, South Carolina patriots who were left in Charleston, they still very much considered themselves bound by their parole. But this episode where Moultrie notices that these citizens have been arrested, he protests vehemently to Balfour, who blows him off entirely. And for me, that was the end of that episode, as far as I was concerned, with William Moultrie. But when I was working on the book about Isaac Hayne, the South Carolina colonel who was hanged by the British on August 4th, 1781, this subject came up again because all of Isaac Hayne's friends, countrymen, kinmen, they were not in Charleston when when he was under arrest by the British and ultimately executed because, again, they were in St. Augustine. And so this piqued my curiosity. This, this issue of the South Carolina patriots being uh, arrested by the British and transported to St. Augustine, East Florida, of all places, what was that about? What did it mean? Why did they do it? What were the ramifications? I was... Very curious about all of those
0: ideas and wanted to look into it further. It wasn't exactly a mystery, but as I said, it's a topic that's not in a lot of history books. Uh, I just mentioned 61 or 62 South Carolinians were sent in exile to Mm. St. Augustine. Chip, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Chip Bragg about his latest book, Patriots in Exile, Charleston Rebels in St. Augustine During the American Revolution. All right, Charleston surrenders, and in May 1780, the folks who had been covertly loyal to the crown all of a sudden show back up. Some had actually already been in exile, and one of your key figures, James Simpson, had been exiled from Charleston, and we want to. I'm going to get into him too because he's the real villain of the mm-hmm. piece. And so, everybody's saying we are loyal. Look at look at what these you know these patriots. These they called them traitors. They, you know, rebels. The, rebels. The bottom rail is on the top, so to mm-hmm. speak. Uh, they wanted justice, and these people are paroled, but they don't. They keep telling Balfour and others. You know, they really are still rebels. They're probably committing treason. We need to do something about them. And so I'll let you pick up the story there.
1: So you're exactly right. And your listeners, I hope, will appreciate the fact that the Revolutionary War in South Carolina was was very much a civil war, where the when the patriots were on top, they were very oppressive to the loyalists. But now, after May of 1780, the situation has reversed, and the loyalists are, have the opportunity to exact some vengeance on the, their former oppressors. This... Uh, Charleston lawyer, former attorney general of South Carolina, James Simpson, had been badly mistreated by the patriots. And he came back with General Clinton for the siege of Charleston with an axe to grind once he got the opportunity to to do so. And he found in, in, in an ally, Colonel Balfour, who um, generally despised Colonist and specifically hated the rebels, and Balfour was. If you just look at him from a patriot standpoint, he was kind of a nasty character. I, I imagine in reality he was probably a fine person and an excellent officer, but he hated the colonist and he was looking for opportunities
0: to make their make the rebels' lives miserable. Oh, he and Tarleton were just bosom mm-hmm. buddies then, mm-hmm. from the same mold. All right. Simpson had been a royal official in South Carolina, and the Simpson family went back several generations. So, you know, South Carolina is all about families. Let's talk about how the Simpson family got out here before the Revolution and how all of that played into the to this story. Well, his father, William Simpson,
1: was an attorney and what you call a placeman, okay. the the royal authorities would fill these provincial offices with their hand-picked people rather than in some cases letting the colonists choose their own and these people were called placemen and they were they were oftentimes um not very well liked despised even i i don't get a sense that the simpson family was was thought poorly of in any respects, but William Simpson was part of the provincial government
0: British. Um, He actually produced a guide for justices of the peace that was used by every lawyer in the colony, and there were lots of lawyers. (laughs) I think there were more lawyers in South Carolina then than there are now. (laughs) Certainly on (laughs) on a percentage basis. And the guide for the justice of the peace wasn't just for the lawyers. This is a day of every man his own lawyer. You've got to know something about the law. So Simpson's guidebook was was well known. And well thought of, I believe, too. It was. It was. Printed locally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So his son is brought up and trained in the law. We're not sure he actually studied at the ends of court. Correct. He clerked in Charleston for a bit. He
1: did travel to England and clerked in some law offices for a while, and then he returned back here. It is a little nebulous, the exact nature of his legal training, but apparently he was trained well enough and thought well enough of that he did receive some
0: positions in the, in the government. Uh, he was clerk of the Royal Council at one point. He was, And then he was vice Vice admiralty judge. Yes, which for a port, pretty important position to have.
1: It was a very important position. And remember, this was the time of the uh, Intolerable Acts and a lot of uh, mischief was going on between parliament and the colonies and being part of the vice admiralty court at this particular time, time
0: was not necessarily a happy place to be. Well, I guess the one thing that the colonists would have said, at least he was better than Sir Edgerton Lee, his predecessor as judge of the Vice Admiralty Court.
1: No doubt. And I get a general sense from from what I've read that was written by um, our patriots about James Simpson is that he was generally pretty well thought of. And I have to wonder if they ever even knew
0: um, what his part in what happened was. So, he's the judge of the Vice Admiralty Court. He also becomes attorney general mm-hmm. just before the collapse of British authority. He,
1: he does, and um, some things that, that the royal governor, William Campbell, said right before he exited South Carolina would lead one to think that James Simpson would have been the royal lieutenant governor of South Carolina had
0: royal government persisted, and you and Professor McCready seem to think that in these last few years before the revolution really broke out in South Carolina, we take it to seventeen seventy-five, he was a, kind of assembling a list of good guys and bad guys. Well,
1: I think that his um, his list of bad guys was not hard to assemble because. As the sentiment um, evolved in South Carolina in general, and Charleston in particular, uh, the Loyalists were um, treated worse and worse, and, and he, he likewise. Um, he spent the day of the Battle of Sullivan's Island, June 28, 1776, confined to his quarters under guard and was um, not allowed to get around Charleston very much, which makes it amazing to me, the degree to which he understood what was going on in Charleston and in South Carolina during that time, because after the Battle of Sullivan's Island, he wrote a scathing account of the British military strategy to Lord George Germain, complete with a very detailed uh, hand-drawn map showing that he really, really knew a lot about what the rebels
0: were up to in Charleston. Well, makes you wonder, you know, the old World War Two thing, loose lips sink ships. Obviously, particularly after that, the triumph at Sullivan's Island, I call it through the really two battles, you've got the naval battle, then you've mm-hmm. got uh, Danger Thompson and his boys keeping the British from from crossing that way. People were probably bragging and talking about it. and And it was in the newspapers, of course, and- As you said, he had access and knowledge Mm -hmm. of the rebels, as he called them. Uh, We call them the Patriots. And he,
1: he was eventually expelled from South Carolina and traveled home to England, where he very much had the ear of the British government. And they were very interested in what he had to say about what had been going on in South Carolina. And he was eventually ordered to New York. Um, to work with uh, General Henry Clinton. And when Clinton came back down to South Carolina, uh, leading up to the siege of Charleston, uh, James Simpson was instrumental in gauging the ability of the loyalists to rise up and support the British Army. He was... um, we can't document it, but it seems like he was around about the countryside gathering information. Well, you say he was expelled, but
0: initially his family was not. Right. He was expelled, and then his family was expelled. And they had a, a very difficult time of it. They were captured. They were captured by the French. I think they they wound up on, in Bermuda for a bit.
1: And There's no—I can't determine when— uh, they were ever
0: reunited until the end of the war. So not only is he expelled and had been treated not very nicely, but his family had also been mistreated. So that's all going to figure into the story. Um, it does. And when
1: you when we talk about the Revolutionary War in South Carolina, it's, it's very easy to talk about how badly the British treated the uh, Patriot families. But um, sometimes the way the Patriots treated the Loyalists is overlooked.
0: There was an incident while Simpson was still there of a Loyalist being tarred and feathered, uh, which, folks, this is a really painful experience. I mean, the tar has got to be almost boiling in order to be liquid. And actually, the poor guy was, I think, given the ra- riding a rail as he was being hauled around town, which was also a rather excruciating treatment. Because when a man was riding the rail, and the rails are pointed sharp, there's a top to him like a spike, and weights are tied to the rider's ankles as he's jostled through, through town. And they made stops at suspected Loyalist residences. Uh, and they stopped and pointedly in front of Simpson's house
1: they were definitely
0: um, trying to make a statement to Simpson so he he's so that gives us background of why he feels the way he did it, It's interesting when he he gave Clinton the idea that eighty almost eighty percent of the population it's overwhelming are going to support his Majesty's government, which is of course what they were relying on they were certainly relying on the back country rising up to to welcome them with open arms. Uh, so his intelligence wasn't so good on that score.
1: No, that and that's almost a recurring theme, that the British always had high hopes that the loyalists in the back country would rise up, and it just didn't seem
0: to work out that way. Okay, so he, he's back in Charleston in 1780, and the British are going to, not They're not going to establish royal government in the colony as a whole, which they'd already done in Georgia. Um, it's a military occupation. But they have a quasi-civil government in Charleston, don't they?
1: They do. But it's headed up by the commandant, Lieutenant Colonel Balfour. It was—when you say quasi, I mean it was also like a quasi-military dictatorship.
0: Yeah. Wasn't there a police force— Yeah, Simpson was
1: um, the the head of the board of police, which was
0: an attempt at civilian authority. Yeah, I I think that's a good good phrase. Attempt. Attempt. He's seeking revenge, and Balfour doesn't like the rebels, and so this sets the stage for what's going to happen. What is the event that kind of makes them gives them? Cause of, oh, we now know that these are, are traitors.
1: You have 5,000 soldiers, sailors, militia, civilians have surrendered, and a large number of them are on parole and supposed to be going about their daily existence behaving themselves. But there was a handful of rebel leaders who, let's just say, they behave themselves but with a lot of attitude. They they would um, whisper among each other, or at least the the British always thought that these patriots were plotting something. They were insolent. They didn't have the, the attitude that they should have. And so they identified a number of them and thought, you know, it would just be better if we could get rid of these people. There's one example. But what you're leading up to, I believe is the the Battle of Camden. So, when the Battle of Camden was fought, which was a terrible disaster for the Americans, the British claimed, they claimed, that they found correspondence in the baggage of their uh, prisoners that they took at Camden that indicated or implicated the Charleston Patriots in activities that were contrary to their paroles. And so between their bad attitudes and the alleged papers, letters, correspondence that they found, that
0: was their excuse to act. You have a delightful example of attitude in here that was the rector of St. James Goose Creek Anglican Church reading the litany. And in the great litany, there is a prayer that it may please thee, God, to preserve his most gracious majesty, our sovereign Lord, King George. The proper response in the litany is, we beseech thee to hear us, good Lord. Nobody said anything. Silence. But from the back of the church, a muffled voice distinctly repeated the response from a previous section, good Lord, deliver us. So, (laughs) that was... (laughs) That was the kind of attitude. It was everywhere. One thing that I found fascinating, Walter, was
1: they were planning to do this quite some time before it occurred. And when I say do this, I mean the rounding up of patriots and sending them to St. Augustine. Simpson was formulating his list of who it was going to be. And he and Balfour... And Cornwallis were all discussing it. I, I think they had kind of an idea in mind of what they wanted to do, but they wanted to wait also until a, there was a British victory. Because if they, if they just gathered these up, guys up and sent them to St. Augustine, it would appear that they were doing it out of fear. So, the victory at Camden and the allegations of parole violation gave them, in their minds, um, reason to do what they were going to do from a position of strength.
0: So, you mentioned Clinton involved in it. So, even before he left, at, right after the capture of Charleston, th- they had in mind they were going to send the leaders o- off somewhere. Had they already picked St. Augustine?
1: No. I. Right. I should say, I don't have evidence that they had picked St. Augustine. And I'm not 100% sure that that this idea developed before Clinton left, but it certainly did in the months of June and July of
0: 1780. Cornwallis was certainly involved. Well, Cornwallis was known to summarily execute Mm -hmm. parole violators. So the decision is made, and— I thought it was very telling. The chapter that discusses the rounding up of the rebels, you call it a rude awakening. (laughs) And I'll let you pick up the story there. Once the decision had been
1: made to round up these recalcitrant rebels and get rid of them, the British soldiers beat on their doors early in the morning, rousted them out of bed allowed them to quickly dress and gather a few personal possessions and then escorted them to the street and then to the royal exchange on
0: broad street at east bay and it wasn't just one man they sent a squad of soldiers i mean it really was a military it was maneuver.
1: a it was a real show of force not only were they demonstrating to the men that they were arresting and their families. But also, I I believe it was to strike fear into the rest of the populace as well. And later on, they rounded up their wives. They did. Um, They took them to the market and let them stand around for the better part of a day,
0: wondering what was going to happen to them before they were finally allowed to go home. It seems that the idea of striking fear into the heart of the populace worked at least temporarily. It did,
1: and it occurred to me after the book was published that, um, that this was really a psychological warfare. I don't think the term had been invented at the time, but um, they did want to get rid of the rebels they didn't like. And they wanted to put fear into the population, and they wanted
0: to um, harass the families as well. Well, initially, they took these men to the exchange, Mm -hmm. and it was upstairs. They weren't in the dungeon. Correct. And then they put them on a ship in the harbor.
1: They put them on a ship called the Sandwich, and that was not a prison ship. That was— a, a transport, and they, they put them on that ship, and they knew within a relatively short time that they were g- going to St. Augustine. How many men were rounded up that first night? Oh, I want to say eighteen, twenty. There were two transportations, one in September and one in November and and the first transportation, there were two roundups, one okay. at the end of August and one a few days later.
0: All right. In your appendix, 29 men okay, rounded sounds, up. Yeah. And then there were eventually, as you said, there was a, there was a second yeah. in November.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, total For a total of 63.
0: Okay. And some of these names, I mean, people would—Christopher you know, Gadsden, uh, Thomas Hayward Jr., signer of the Declaration mm-hmm. of, of Independence. Gadsden was lieutenant governor of South Carolina at the Revolution. But then they did some interesting folks. What about uh, Edward McCready? He had a tavern. You know, he's not a member of the elite. He probably is one of, as you mentioned, Christopher Gadsden's boys who can take to the streets in a heartbeat. But it seems to be his only crime was that McCready's tavern was where these patriots tended to gather.
1: It's interesting, Walter, that when you look at the list of gentlemen who were transported to St. Augustine. You have, like you mentioned, the very well-known Christopher Gadsden, Arthur Middleton, Edward Rutledge, Thomas Hayward Jr. And then you have at the other end of the spectrum quite a number of gentlemen who, but for having been part of this banishment, their names might have been lost to history altogether. But there was something about them that annoyed the British, and it was that they
0: were unrepentant rebels. Well, that unrepentant, that that I think is a, a very interesting term because Simpson evidently had four groups the way he analyzed uh, individuals. And I found that fascinating. You want to share that with us? He. He identified four groups. Um,
1: one group was the, those that were loyal all along. And then the second group was those who were patriots, but they realized their cause was lost and they were willing to go with the British program. And then there was a third group that were patriots, still attached to the cause, but sort of with the realization that things weren't going to work out for them, And then the last group was the recalcitrant, unrepentant patriots who, they were in it for the
0: long run. No matter what happened, they weren't giving up. You use that wonderful term, recalcitrant, mm-hmm. um, and that their cause should never be relinquished. Right. As you said, the, the interesting cross-section, but the leadership, particularly the civilian leadership, that was in Charleston at the fall of the city in May, that was who was on this list, mm-hmm. members of the Provincial Congress, mm-hmm. Lieutenant Governor, judges, what what have you. Interestingly, General Moultrie's not on the list. Well, the,
1: the list was mainly civilians, and he was, you know, still part of the military. There were certainly some militia people who were transported, but in terms of Continental Army, they all remained in Charleston. In fact, one Continental Officer, uh, Dr. Peter Faisu, was arrested with the original group of uh, detainees, and once it was realized that he was a Continental Officer and in charge of the, the hospital in Charleston, they released him back to Charleston. This
0: really was a blow at the civilian population. Yes. Now... People would say, well, my my parole is being violated. You are violating my parole. But it seems that it wasn't just a very simple piece of paper. There were a lot of stipulations put into the parole. And being a legal beagle, uh, Simpson said, oh, here's what we're going to use to make it possible. There was a particular term of the parole clause, and I'm quoting now, surrender myself to him at such time and place as I shall hereafter be required. So Lieutenant Colonel Balfour of the British authorities is saying now, you're going to surrender to us in St. Augustine. So to back up just a bit, there
1: was the big to-do about the allegations of parole violation, which in my mind have never been substantiated because if the British had found uh, documentation to the effect that these men were really colluding against them in violation of their parole. I think this um, documentation would either exist today somewhere or would have been published in the newspapers of the time. And more than Isaac yeah. Hayne would have been strung up, right? And exactly. But when they got these gentlemen on the ship, the the Lord Sandwich before they they sailed for St Augustine a british officer comes out and says well we're not going to transport you for parole violation after all cornwallis has decided that we're going to transport you just as a matter of policy and that's where you like you were saying you you look at the wording of the parole and the parole says basically they can send you wherever they want to and that's exactly what they did. All right. They, they, they sent them to St. Augustine and they had this gigantic uh, fort there, the Castle St. Mark's, Castillo, San Marcos in the Spanish. But St. Augustine was just a little garrison town and not nothing much there, no reason f- certainly for anybody to want to go there. Are they put in the Castillo? No, sir. They, um, they are set about a certain circumscribed area of town to be on their paroles again. They, in fact, they issued new paroles. They wanted these exiles to sign new paroles, and they all were willing to sign these new paroles except for one, Christopher Gadsden. Christopher Gadsden adamantly maintained that he had done nothing to violate his first parole. He didn't need to sign a new parole. His old parole was good, and he wasn't going to sign. And the British authorities, uh, Governor Patrick Tonin, said, well, you're either going to sign or we're going to lock you up in the Castle St. Mark's. And he said, I'm not going to sign. And so for that reason, Christopher Gadsden spent the entirety of the banishment in a dark cell
0: in the Castle St. Marks. So everybody else is in town. How are they housed? Who's paying for all of that? Are they responsible for their own welfare?
1: They divided themselves up into several messes, um, groups of men who— knew each other well, and I guess enjoyed each other's company, and they they set about town and rented accommodations, and they were responsible for providing a certain amount of their own provisions. Uh, some came from the British, but there in St. Augustine, rations were not, not all that plentiful, so they grew gardens, and one group bought a cow for milk. And interestingly, Each one of these gentlemen were able to bring uh, one slave with them. And so they obtained permission for their slaves to fish. That's how they
0: supplemented their diet. So you're not only transporting 63 parolees, Mm -hmm. what do you want to call them, exiles, Mm -hmm. but each one, are there 63 enslaved persons going with them?
1: We don't have an exact count, but I've just always assumed Correctly, I hope that each
0: man had had one servant that's a hundred and thirty people, mm-hmm. considerably increasing the population of saint augustine mm-hmm.
1: yeah the um the enslaved servants turned out to be very
0: helpful to these gentlemen in in acquiring food, and they were also used by the British and commandeered to help with the fortifications mm-hmm. were they not they were Another um, supply of food,
1: of course, they were able to purchase from local merchants, but there was one gentleman named Jesse Fish, who might be considered the father of the citrus industry in Florida, uh, kept them considerably supplied with fresh oranges.
0: Okay. How long are they going to be held in exile they were there um, just shy of a full year. What is the government, the Continental Congress, doing about trying to get these men back? This is something that I found very interesting when I looked
1: into it. You had correspondence going back and forth in every, every way imaginable, uh, Walter. You had uh, Balfour corresponding with Tonin in St. Augustine. Um, Balfour corresponding with Cornwallis and Clinton and Germain. You had the Continental Congress corresponding with Washington and Green, and Green corresponding with Balfour and Washington corresponding with Clinton. There's this entangled web of correspondence where everybody's writing everybody about these captives. The Continental Congress wanted George Washington to look into it. Washington queries Clinton, and Clinton sort of puts forth a plausible deniability, to use a interesting term. He, he sort of acted like he kind of vaguely was aware that they had been sent, but he denied knowing very much about it. And when Green queried Cornwallis,
0: Cornwallis acted fairly much the same way. Oh, it, it was Balfour. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who has suffered the opprobrium of sub- subsequent generations yeah. so they're there for almost a year. How are they released? Is it a prisoner swap or just we 're going to ship everybody to new york
1: so so they're there for a year, and the the main suffering that they underwent was boredom and tedium and lack of information and worry about their families. They they weren't really physically oppressed. But they they anxiously awaited every ship that sailed into St. Augustine in the hope that there might be a Charleston newspaper on it. And they eventually learned that the British Army and the American Army had established a cartel for the exchange of prisoners of war, and that they were going to be included in that exchange. And once that became generally known to them and to the military authorities in St. Augustine, arrangements were made for them to have a, a seaborne transport from St. Augustine. They couldn't go back to Charleston because Charleston was still under British occupation. They were going to have to go somewhere else.
0: And that turned out to be Philadelphia. Okay. And so all 63 of them?
1: Uh, No, it was actually 61. Uh, There was, over the course of the year, one gentleman named Philip Smith was allowed by the British to return home where he probably took protection of the British. That episode is, is dealt with in the book. It's not exactly known what the details were, but he was allowed to go home. And then there was another gentleman whose wife had died, leaving quite a number of children without a parent, and uh, the British authorities let him go home early too. OK, But 61 went to Philadelphia, and they remained there until the evacuation of Charleston. Not exactly. They all wanted to go home almost immediately, but a a certain number of them remained in Philadelphia. A certain number of them traveled overland to South Carolina where they reached Jacksonboro in time to play a part in the
0: Jacksonboro Assembly. Chip, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Chip Bragg about his latest book, Patriots in exile, Charleston rebels in St. Augustine during the American Revolution. Alright, let's explain to our listeners what the Jacksonboro Assembly is. Okay. The Jacksonboro Assembly was the reconstitution of
1: our government in South Carolina after it having been in such
0: disarray after the fall of Charleston. It's basically the restoration of, of civil government. But it's meeting in Jacksonboro because Charleston is still occupied by the British. Correct. And in fact,
1: the, the forces of Nathaniel Green and Francis Marion had to position themselves in South Carolina in such a way to prevent the British from trying to disrupt this uh, reconstitution of civil government. But when the Jacksonboro Assembly, which was the, the reconstitution of the legislature and the election of a governor um, took place. Twenty-eight of the exiles
0: participated. And it was this assembly that came up with the acts that punished loyalists. Yes, the Confiscation and Immersement Acts. Okay. And, well, confiscation, we can pretty well get that. That means property gets taken. What are the embarrassment acts? It was generally recognized or believed that
1: eventually the British were going to pack up and leave. And that would leave in place all the loyalists who had been mistreating our patriots while the British were in power. And some of these loyalists were considered so odious that it was thought that they should lose all of their property and have to leave. So that was the confiscation part of it. Immersement was the imposition of a very large
0: financial penalty like a tax. Well, what is interesting in the Jackson Borough Assembly, one of the individuals opposing the confiscation and immersement acts was none other than Christopher Gadsden.
1: Interesting because if anybody had reason to be angry and vengeful, it was him and and he just I guess he wasn't wired that way
0: he we don't have although we do have we have some of his papers we don't have everything that he said but the his, the general tenor of his remarks was you know basically gentlemen, when this is all over we got to rebuild South Carolina and not everybody you know. Not everybody's hands are completely clean in this affair um, true and and William Moultrie pointed out
1: in more than one place in his memoirs that he did not consider taking British protection an unpardonable sin that some men some families had to do it just to survive
0: and and he he thought they should uh, get a break and that was particularly true of Artisans, small shopkeepers they if they if they didn't take protection they were out of out of business in fact uh if you were a bricklayer or a carpenter or what have you, if you didn't take protection, you were not allowed to practice your trade,
1: therefore you didn't earn any income and your family starved
0: yeah in succeeding years when the general assembly met, it reduced the penalties of individuals on the embarrassment lists. And eventually some of them got off scot-free. Attitudes did indeed soften over time. Well, it also depended upon your friends in the General Assembly. <laughs> no, no doubt. <laughs> so you've done a lot of work on the, the revolution, your biography of Moultrie, Isaac Hayne. On this project, what did you enjoy the most Forming the relationship with my co-author Waring
1: McCready, when I became interested in this project, I contacted a a lawyer who lives in Lugoff, named Charles Baxley. Mm. Charles is a gentleman who tends to know who's working on what, and anybody who's planning to write anything about the Revolution in South Carolina would be well advised to check with Charles to see if anybody else is working on it. So I sent Charles an email and and said, Charles, I'm thinking about working on the patriots who were exiled to St. Augustine. Is there anybody else who's working on it? And Charles sent me back an email that said, there's a retired professor at Swanee who's been working on it for quite a long time. You might want to check with him. And he gave me Waring's um, email. And as an aside, Waring, if you're listening today, I, I'm sorry you can't be here with us. I um, hope you're well. But I contacted Waring, and and he sent me an email that, that essentially said that he had been working on this project for decades. He had two ancestors who were part of what I began calling the Florida vacation. <laughs> but he was concerned that he had so overwritten it that it, it was not publishable, and, and so I suggested to him that maybe he would send me what he had, and I would look at it and uh, edit it down and, and add my own stuff, and that way, together, we would come up with something that would be publishable. So, that aspect of it, I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And the other aspect I really enjoyed was figuring out who James Simpson was and in, in his role, I've been asked many times what argument were we trying to make in this book, and to be honest with you, we're not really trying to make a particular point or argument, but we're trying to tell a story. but if if we make a real contribution to the historical record with this book, I think it's figuring out that James Simpson was the
0: uh, instigator and in what his role was. to me that that was the the fascinating point. You not only identified him, but you had incredible mm-hmm. documentation to back up your accusations. <laughs> Interestingly, because I know you read a lot about the American Revolution, there are two new books out about prisoners of war in the, in the colonies mm-hmm. during that time. So th- this aspect of the revolution, you're on the cutting edge of it. Well, we try. <laughs> What's your next project? Walter, honestly, I don't have a
1: next project right now, and it, I'm happiest when I have a project. So
0: if, any, if you have a suggestion or if, <laughs> if anybody else does, I'd be glad to entertain it. Well, I would say look at Loyalists, but the Loyalists have been pretty well covered in South Carolina. Well, I just um, not too long ago contributed a chapter
1: about Alexander Chesney mm-hmm. in a recent book published by the University
0: of South Carolina Press. And for those people who do work on the Revolution and interested in it, the Loyalist transcripts about South Carolinians is, is an incredible source. I think I've read them all, as have you. After the Revolution, Loyalists left South Carolina, and they were an incredible cross-section of the population. And the British government compensated them for their losses. They had hearings and took down, well, I lost my tavern. I had 10 cows all of this, so you not only knew who the Loyalists were, you knew the worlds from which they came. And like I said, it was an incredible cross-section, wealthy planters, free persons of color, and it's all there in the Loyalist transcripts, which are copies of which are in the state archives. So we've got a couple of minutes. Any last thoughts about the revolution or about this particular topic you want to share with our listeners?
1: Walter, I would like for your listeners to appreciate that while so much is said and and written about the Revolutionary War, particularly in the northern colonies with George Washington, et cetera, et cetera, it was really down here in South Carolina where the Revolutionary War was fought
0: and won. You're singing my song. (laughs) I I knew that would resonate. (laughs) And... and, uh, of course, new, new information comes out about battle sites. Uh, the Battlefield Trust, of course, is really operating here in South Carolina to, to preserve Revolutionary War sites. And the Battlefield Trust is doing a lot of work in South Carolina, partnering with local government, private individuals to preserve the numerous sites that are known here in our state. And it's interesting, given the fact that the Battlefield Trust is headquartered primarily north of the Mason-Dixon line, where everybody thinks New Jersey and the Revolution. They chose South Carolina as the pilot project for moving in from Civil War battlefields to Revolutionary War battlefields.
1: I'm very happy that they've they've done that, and there there are really some excellent South Carolina battlefields to visit. and I'm not just talking the Charleston area. There's Kings Mountain and Cowpens, and anybody who hasn't visited 96
0: should go there. Yes, and there is that wonderful 18th century earthen work right outside of Charleston, which was one of the first sites mm-hmm. that they... You would say, after all these years, it's it's there, and it's, and it's it's preserved. All right, Chip, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Chip Bragg, co-author of Patriots in exile, Charleston rebels in St. Augustine during the American Revolution. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you. I'm very happy to have been here. This is Walter Edgar and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was especially fun to have Chip Bragg back on the show. He is quite an authority on the American Revolution in South Carolina. And this book, Patriots in Exile, is another example about a not well-known event in South Carolina history but a significant one because of the impact it had on individuals and the course of the American Revolution in South Carolina. It's all part of our state's history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.